Okay, welcome. Thank you so much um, for inviting me. It's really an honor and a pleasure to come here. And um, so what I'm going to do is, in the beginning, it's very uh, immunologically uh, oriented, particularly as we think about uh, regulating the immune system by regulating cellular metabolism. But if you, if you really don't like that, I assure you, um, for the, uh, at the end of the talk, I get into this finding that we made in terms of systemic metabolism that you, you guys are probably much more experts at than I am, but maybe you'll find it interesting and uh, you can help me out. Um, so, as uh, Tony mentioned, my true passion is immunology, and what, what got me into immunology was this. This is a peptide in here, and this is a T-cell receptor, um, you know, having its precise fit with the peptide. And I was struck, you know, when I was a student by this beautiful specificity that a, that a T-cell receptor could interrogate MAC on the surface of cells, thousands of them, and find its exact fit. But as, um, as beautiful as this interaction is, it doesn't tell the T-cell if this is coming from a virus, a parasite, a tumor, or even self. And so when I, um, when I started my own lab, one of the things that I wanted to do was to understand how cells of the immune system, in particular T-cells, integrate signals from the environment to tell them what to do. And for many of you, this is incredibly, an incredible review, but I just, you know, to point out to get everyone up to speed that, of course, upon T-cell um, recognition, there are many uh, flavors of T-cells in terms of what the T-cell can become. And so, you know, from CD8 cells, a CTL, which is a killer cell or a memory cell, and then the various types of um, CD4 effector cells, TH1, 2, 17, as well as uh, regulatory, uh, follicular and regulatory T-cells. And so we wanted to understand, you know, what are the signals that help regulate this? And in thinking about this problem, we came across mTOR, and basically because if you, it, it's, it's evolutionarily conserved kinase, that if you look in yeast, what does mTOR do? Well, it integrates signals from the environment and tells the cell, life is good, you know, you should proliferate, or life is bad, you should eat yourself, i.e. Um, autophagy. And so we were wondering if this kind of integration and then um, decision-making could also be applied to all of the um, signals that a T-cell encounters upon, like I said, that beautiful recognition. And so I'm going to start out with some published data just to get everyone up to speed, and then I assure you we'll go into um, unpublished data, some of which is unpublished, not by choice. Um, uh, but anyway... Um, uh, so what we did is we knocked down mTOR in T cells, and the results were actually kind of cool. First of all, we got T cells, but what we found is, is that if we tried to make uh, Th1 or Th2 cells in the mTOR knockouts, we didn't get them. Not shown here in terms of uh, IL-4 production or gamma interferon production. And likewise, when we took the T cells lacking mTOR and we tried to induce them under skewing conditions to become Th17 cells, you can see that unlike their wild-type counterparts, they couldn't become Th17 cells. So um, the question was, if, um, uh, if they're not becoming, they're there, they proliferate, slower, but they proliferate, you know, what do these cells uh, become? And the answer is, is that they, for the most part, become regulatory T cells. And so what's really neat is that, for those of you who do these experiments, in order to make regulatory T cells in vitro, you got to do some heroic things like take a dump truck of TGF-beta and put it in the culture or, um, or um, you know, manipulate the system. But in our system, the mTOR knockouts under activating conditions. So if we tried to make a Th1 cell, the cell became a Treg. If we tried to make a Th17 cell, the cell became a Treg. So that was kind of neat, and like I said, this has all uh, been published a couple of years now. And what it, it led us to conclude is that 
uh, T cell is stimulated in the absence of mTOR failed to differentiate into effector subsets. And instead, it, it sort of brought forth this new idea that um, the default <coughs> in antigen recognition in the absence of mTOR activation is to become a regulatory cell. So this was um, this is kind of neat and a little bit useful if you're thinking about transplantation and autoimmunity. And so the next thing we wanted to do, I have a, my training at Dartmouth in particular was in biochemistry, so you know, we like to think of signaling pathways. And so mTOR actually signals um, via two complexes, conveniently called mTORC1 or complex 1 and mTORC2. And I'm not going to go through all this uh, um, signaling, but the two things I want you to remember is that TORC1 activity is dependent upon the small GTPase rep. And TORC2 activity, among other things, is dependent upon this adapter protein, Richter. And so the next questions we wanted to ask is, what are the contributions of mTORC1 and mTORC2 towards T-cell differentiation? And the results, once again, were actually kind of cool, because what we found was is that if we eliminated TORC1 activity by getting rid of REV, absolutely cannot get TH1 or um, TH17 cells. On the other hand, no problem getting TH2 cells. So very, um, very conveniently, TORC1, TH1. So TOR complex 1 was, uh, uh, was regulating TH1 cells and TH17, but not TH2 cells. So of course, when we got this data, and once again, this all published, we had to look at the Richter knockouts, which are TORC2 knockouts. And you can see that they make um, gamma interferon no problem. In fact, they make a little gamma interferon even under TH2 conditions. And they also have no problem making TH17 cells. But when we asked the cells to become TH2 cells, they absolutely cannot become THC cells. So really kind of neat, right? TORC2, TH2, TORC1, TH1. And this is just some in vivo data showing help for uh, the synthesis of uh, immunoglobulin. And so what, what was emerging was this model whereby upon T-cell receptor recognition, mTOR played this integrating role of the environmental cues to tell the T-cell what to become. And so we put this to the test in a model of EAE, which is, which is in a sense a mouse model of multiple sclerosis. And this is a TH1 slash TH17 mediated disease. So it's very convenient because the prediction was that the mice that were lacking TORC1 in their T cells would not develop disease. And in fact, that's what we found, that they had much less clinical scores and much less infiltration in their brainstem. So that was kind of neat. But lucky for me, I had a really observant um, student because what he did notice was is that EAE is a disease of paralysis, and our mice were not becoming paralyzed. But they were doing this, and they're not, so I can assure you, they're not in pain or anything. They're walking as if they're drunk. Um, they're ataxic, right? And so like I said, lucky for me, um, I had a very observant student because this had actually been described before, this ataxia, autoimmune ataxia, and people had described this as um, uh, non-classical EAE. And in fact, that's um, mediated by more of TH2 cells. So, so the reason we think this is really nice is because, and you can see the infiltration in the cerebellum here by um, uh, immune cells, is that what happened was is that when we got rid of TORC1, we didn't completely debilitate the cell. Like, we didn't just you know, make it bad. Um, on the other hand, what happened was when it, was, it, when it recognized its antigen, Rather than um, going through the normal program to become the T cell it was supposed to be based on the environmental cues, it became a different T cell, a T cell that induced um, a different disease. So, um, so this was really neat in terms of our ideas. mTOR is a great uh, integrator. And so to sum up some of that work, 
Um, basically, as I mentioned, torque 1, TH1, and TH17 differentiation, torque 2, TH2, if you get rid of both, then, um, then actually we get uh, regulatory um, T cells. Um, so uh, next, and I assure you, we're getting to the metabolism part here. Um, uh, so we, um, so like I said, we're really interested in signaling, and we're really interested in biochemistry. So um, one of my students, Emily Highcamp, wanted to go one step further. So we had knocked out this complex, knocked out this complex, and she wanted to go downstream even further. And she um, focused on this AGC kinase called SGK1. So, and the reason she did is because it's downstream of torque 2. So what is SGK1? It stands for serum glucocorticoid regulated kinase 1. It's uh, AGC kinase. Um, it's, uh, the reason we, we focus on it is because it's uh, activated by torque 2 activity. And previously, it had been shown that SGK1 regulates sodium channel expression in renal tubular epithelial cells. So, so there was no really immunology surrounding SGK1. Now, having said that, while we were working on this, um, BJ Kutru's group showed that it, it may play a role in making pathogenic TH17 cells. But to be honest with you, what they described is very, really is different than what we were working on. And I'll show you in a second. So, so Emily's hypothesis was, is that could SGK1 be playing a role in mTORC2 mediated TH2 differentiation? And actually, finally, I, I can change what I say about this, is that, so this paper actually just came out online at the Nature Immunology website. So it's not in PubMed yet, but, um, but now it finally is published, actually. And so once again, here's the model that TORC2 regulates um, uh, AKT, but it also regulates SGK1. And you know, what happens when we knock out SGK1? And the results were actually really cool, because you know, before we knocked out all TORC2 activity, but here, just when she knocks out um, SGK1, you can see that we don't get TH2 cells. So this whole arm is intact, and yet we don't, the T cells no longer produce IL-4, IL-5, or IL-13. So this is a very specific pathway um, to regulating um, TH2-ness, if you will, through um, TORC2. But, but it gets even better, because what we found was is that when we selectively deleted um, SGK1, when you look into the, the cells do not become TH2 cells, but instead they produce actually a lot of gamma interferon. And so you can see that here. Normally, um, under TH2 conditions, you don't have a lot of TBET, but in the SGK1 knockouts, you have a lot. And likewise, the SGK1 knockouts don't have a lot of GATA3, which is a transcription factor for TH2 cells. So it appeared as if that SGK1 was doing two things. One is it was promoting TH2-ness, but at the same time, in a sense, it was inhibiting TH1-ness. And so we wondered if we could exploit this in a, sense, in a clinical sense. And so, um, uh, so what we did is we, um, we did a house dust mite asthma model in these mice. And sure enough, the results are actually uh, nice in that um, in the wild-type mice, you get these goblet cells that stain by PAS staining right here, but very few in the extra knockouts as well as you get this um, peri-bronchular um, peri-vascular um, uh, cuffing of lymphocytes in the wild type, but really um, much less in the SGK1 knockouts. So th what this said is, is that um, uh, we could actually um, prevent the development of asthma by knocking out SGK1 and T cells. And of course, this is kind of this is potentially very important because I know there are a lot of clinicians in the audience. As you know, um, you know, the way we treat asthma now is incredibly nonspecific. 
in terms of high-dose steroids or uh, beta-2 agonists. And so this might be uh, a way to selectively regulate the development of uh, this disease in a way that potentially has no uh, side effects or, or different or less side effects. So, so we were working on this data, and, and, and as Tony mentioned, I'm actually, my appointment is in oncology. And so my, my boss, Drew, says, he says, this is great, but why don't you cure cancer? And so um, I said, well, I think we can. And so, um, so as I mentioned, the SGK1 knockouts, um, they have very little TH2 development, but also they had, the, it, we removed this negative regulatory pathway for TH1-ness. And so this is, in, we, we typically use um, a vaccinia virus in our system. And you can see that, of course, the wild type make really good gamma interferon in response to vaccinia. But, what, but the SGK1 knockouts make even more, okay? And then, this wasn't good enough for the reviewers, so we had to do a second model, and this is actually influenza. And you can see that, you know, once again, the wild type make good response to influenza, because that's what they do. But the SGK1s make more. And so we were wondering, these are very strong inducers of TH1-ness. We wondered, in cancer, which is not so strong, would we have a positive effect? And indeed, what we found, and this is a melanoma model, that if we challenged the SGK1 knockouts, we got a marked decrease in the amount of uh, melanoma metastasis to the lung. This is the wild type versus the knockout. And, um, and, and then, uh, sure enough, when we did uh, a different model that involved uh, a vaccine, we got this enhanced um, production of gamma interferon producing cells in the lung, uh, as well as uh, we had an increase in survival. Um, so the reason that I like this is this is exactly where we want to go. And, and that is that in the old days, we used to do things like suppress the immune system or even activate it nonspecifically. But we think, you know, and of course, uh, we favor the mTOR pathway, that by targeting downstream of mTOR, we can regulate the immune system. And so kind of my fantasy is, is that um, you could, uh, through pharmacologic inhibition of SGK1, you could treat asthma. So you could give an asthma patient a pill that blocks SGK1. But then alternatively, you could give the same pill to someone who's getting immunotherapy for cancer and actually enhance their immunotherapy, right? And so, you know, certainly now in the oncology world, we're very excited because, you know, um, immunotherapy was named the, um, the breakthrough of the year. And, and what I like to say is that for sure, you know, as immunotherapists, we're definitely as good as the people giving chemotherapy right now. And we think we can be much better. You know, whereas chemotherapy gets approved, you know, by improving life a couple of weeks, some of the immunotherapy trials with anti-PD-1, et cetera, are really um, uh, improving um, survival along the uh, years. And so, you know, certainly we've played with in the lab the idea of inhibiting SGK1 as well as giving a checkpoint blockade. So we're very excited by this idea of having a small molecule to enhance anti-tumor therapy. Once again, not by non-specifically activating the whole immune system, but selectively activating the system that uh, we're interested in. Okay, so we're getting to the metabolism part. So one of the things, the reason that we got into metabolism at all is because one of the pathways that mTOR um, yeah, plays a robust role in regulating is um, metabolic pathways. And so this is from a review um, we're putting together, and what I tried to do um, is in blue is kind of like your canonical T cell signaling because you know this is what I grew up on AP1, NF kappa B, and NFAP. 
And what we tried to do is to integrate the metabolic regulation within this and show that these programs are intimately related and, and, and the programs are necessary to get the end result. Meaning, um, to make a TH1 cell, you can't just have NFAT and AP1 or NF-kappa B, but you also need to upregulate TORC1 activity in order to upregulate um, glycolysis. And so one of the things that we wondered is if we could um, inhibit the metabolic pathways in order to once again regulate the immune response. So, um, so this is actually, this is exactly kind of the, you know, the, the foundation or the paradigm that we're, that we're working off of. And this shows that if you have wild-type TH1 cells, uh, they actually have increased ECAR, the seahorse data, um, you know, in terms of, um, you know, as a measurement of potentially glycolysis. Um, but if you take the um, Treg, the, the red knockouts, Th1 cells, their um, glycolytic flux is much less. And then what's really interesting too is that even the wild type Tregs have low glycolysis because they, as um, has already been shown, they've uh, they use mostly oxphos and fatty acid oxidation as their form of energy. And so once again, this is this is great because rather than suppressing the immune system, you could in inhibit effector function, but actually leave um, regulatory T cell function intact because the therapeutic difference between those two is their difference in terms of their um, metabolism. So we wondered if we could exploit this, and, and other people have wondered this as well. And so, um, so we once again, I told you we like using the vaccine model. And so we added um, uh, labeled OT1, which are CD8 cells, or OT2, which are um, CD4 cells that rec recognize OVA. And we infected our mice, and then we um, devised kind of a metabolic cocktail. So no immunosuppression, just uh, metabolic suppression. And uh, you can see that when we use 2DG and metformin, we get a marked decrease in terms of the proliferation of the cells. And indeed, when we interrogate those cells, they produce less gamma interferon. So, you know, once again, we didn't invent this idea. We're just trying to exploit it based on, um, you know, what's already been known. So this, this was kind of neat in that in this very potent TH1 response, just by giving 2DG to black glycolysis and metformin, um, uh, you could enhance, uh, um, you could inhibit um, the TH1, uh, actually the CD8 uh, effector differentiation. So then we, we apply the same system to CD4 cells, and this is exactly what I'm talking about in terms of getting like the most robust regulation of the immune response. And you can see here that um, 2DG metformin decreased the number of CD4 cells, but overall the percentage of FOXP3 positive regulatory cells went up, right? So that's exactly what you want if you want to promote transplant tolerance, if you want to potentially even treat autoimmune disease. And so um, this was very encouraging to us. So then we applied this to a complete mismatch um, skin graft. And this, you know, in the immunologic world, um, if there are any transplanters here, of course you know, this is like really one of the most um, highest bars to overcome. In skin, skin is very immunogenic, and then of course a complete MHC uh, mismatch. And so um, all we did was uh, treat the mice with uh, 2DG and uh, metformin. And you can see consistently, not, not great difference, we would prolong graft survival. So then we said, well, what if we add our favorite drug to it, rapamycin, as well? And you can see that when we do that, 
um, you know, we can really promote tamoxifen. So um, here's the rapamycin alone as a single agent. You can double it, but you can get uh, four times as much graft survival um, if you use the metabolic inhibitors as well. So this is exactly, you know, the type of thing that we were looking for because this idea that you could inhibit effector function initially with 2DG and metformin and then sort of promote the, path, the, the tolerogenic pathway, if you will, uh, with the rapamycin. So, so that was encouraging, and, and here uh, what I'm showing you is we blocked uh, glycolysis. But, but another aspect of um, T-cell metabolism that any of you who culture T-cells know absolutely is that they require a lot of glutamine, right? So glutamine uh, enters the TCA cycle um, and then actually helps to pro um, promote the production of substrates necessary for um, growth and proliferation. And so we wondered if we inhibited glutamine, could we get the effect to be even better? And so um, we use this um, compound called Don. I actually forget, it's some glutamine analog that inhibits both glutamine transport as well as glutaminase. It's not very specific. But, um, but what you can see that's kind of neat, and once again not horribly surprising, is that Don really inhibits uh, the uh, proliferation of the CD8 cells their gamma interferon production as well. And when we put it with the um, 2DG and the metformin, it looks like we get the maximal effect. So once again, this idea that we're not using classic immunosuppressive agents, but rather just regulating cellular metabolism. And when we apply this to the skin graft model, um, we get, once again, we get really neat results in that. You see Don itself is pretty potent, and when we add the drugs together, um, we get um, a really nice effect. And so, you know, when we showed this to um, Gerald Banneker, who's, uh, uh, I forget what they call it, like combined tissue graft, you know, he's the guy that puts faces on people and uh, things and arms and hands. And he was really excited uh, about the, the possibility of this metabolic therapy because, as you all know, you know, the side effects of um, calcineurin inhibitors and even steroids are, are so marked. The idea that you, in a sense, the side effects of, uh, of this are, are the opposite. And so we're very excited about um, translating this, mainly because 2DG, Don, and Metformin have all been in people before. So there's a history of um, using these drugs in people. So we think, we wouldn't probably go straight to transplant, but at least in patients who have acute inflammation, you know, for example, someone comes in with you know, horrible arthritis that's flaring up. You know, we're, we want to start there and then move on. This concept of um, metabolic therapy. And just, I like to show this. This is an older um, article, but um, so in, in the clinical world, I'm a bone marrow transplanter. And um, so it all, I always thought that, you know, when mini or non-myeloblative transplants came out, you know, it, it was very exciting to me because this was a way to cure sickle cell disease or non-malignant hematologic disorders, right? You know, everyone's thinking about gene therapy, but I'm like, why worry about gene therapy? It's like, just put in cells that have the correct gene. And if we can do it safely, all the better. And so I wasn't the only person thinking this. And so non-myeloblative hematopoietic stem cell transplant um, uh, was, was initiated and it failed. And the reason it failed is because using conventional immunosuppression that um, involved calcineurin inhibitors actually um, inhibited the induction of tolerance. 
So as soon as you started to get rid of the immunosuppression, you got great chimerism or donor cells in the beginning, and then it crashed and the donor cells were rejected, right? So this was a great idea, but it wasn't working. So based in part on our data um, uh, using mTOR inhibitors, along with John Tisdale, and he's the one, the PI at the NIH that ran this trial, we, we, we developed this strategy where we used alentuzumab or CAMPATH, and I, I call this frequency depletion therapy. So we get rid of T cells temporarily. We give a little TBI to make space, and then um, we give the, um, uh, the stem cell transplant to the sickle patients uh, under the cover of rapamycin, presumably to inhibit differentiation of um, a factor cell, but also to promote uh, T-Rex. And you know, remember, I showed you in the, old, in the older studies, it was you got donor chimerism and crash. But in our studies, we get persistent donor chimerism. And this is actually incredibly cool because this represents a true transplantation tolerance in people. Because these people are chimeric, and they're chimeric with their hematopoietic cells, right? So the donor and the um, host bone marrow are living together in harmony. And in not all the patients yet, and certainly in this original article, only four of the patients were completely off immunosuppression. But now we're going to have a follow-up article, hopefully uh, coming out soon in JAMA, that will show that we can get rid of the rapamycin completely. And so then that's tolerance in people, meaning you have, um, you have the donor and the host living together, no immunosuppression whatsoever. Yeah. yeah, so this is in um, a matched-related um, setting. Now, having said that, we actually have a trial ongoing in a haplose setting right now. And it's more, as you can imagine, it's more difficult. But the, the devil's in the details, meaning it, 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 we're get, the frequency of rejection is higher, but we haven't maximized the uh, protocol yet. But that's where we're going. Because if we can get a haplo, uh, um, non-mobilative haplo to work in this with this regimen, that's like the cure for sickle cell disease because our biggest problem in this uh, trial was the eligibility based on the fact that didn't, people didn't have uh, HLA-matched sibling who didn't have sickle cell disease. And so if you can make, but on the other hand, over 90% of the people had, a, had an aunt, an uncle, a mother, a father, a sibling, um, uh, a son or a daughter even, who, who of course are at least identical. So if we can get it to work in haploidentical, then we can have people come in, almost unvariably they're going to have a match and we can um, hopefully uh, cure them. And I use that word because this is the data, but of course all of you know that you can see data like this in the New England Journal and the patients can be absolutely miserable. Um, and, and we know, or, or like the cutoff for survival is two years and then everyone dies between two and five years, you know. Um, but, but what's really neat is not only did we get um, hemoglobin up and, and, and uh, sit, um, hemolysis down, but these patients are actually incredibly happy. Actually, one of them was um, featured on NBC News. He became a pilot. We had one of the rewarding things. We had one of the um, patients came to Hopkins and gave grand rounds for us, and he had always wanted to go to medical school. And, uh, you know, he was always in and out of the hospital, and now he's finishing up his undergraduate degree to go to medical school. So the really neat thing is I can tell you, I don't have the data here, but they're actually really happy and it's really working. In fact, the reason a lot of the patients are not off rapamycin completely is they're afraid to come off it completely because they're so happy. And they're like, no, 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 I don't want to jeopardize it. So they're like titrating it down very uh, slowly. Okay. So of course, so, um, you know, the, the holy grail of transplant is long-term tolerance in the absence of long-term immunosuppression. 
And um, uh, we think that what this kind of combination of what I call frequency depletion therapy, that is get rid of the T cells temporarily, and then anti-metabolic therapy to prevent acute rejection, and either co-stimulatory blockade, plus or minus mTOR inhibition is a way to achieve this goal. And so um, not only am I excited about this in um, bone marrow transplantation, but the other area where I think it's potentially uh, very useful actually is in cellular transplant, for example, islet cell transplant, because there's no reason really why we couldn't apply this type of approach to inducing tolerance in islet cell transplant as well. And then, of course, um, you know, in solid organ uh, transplant. But I think that, um, you know, finally, you know, the, the clinicians are on board with the idea, you, you know, calcineurin inhibitors revolutionize transplantation. So, of course, anyone, people are going to be wary about getting rid of them. But on the other hand, this idea of regulating the immune system rather than completely blocking it is, uh, you know, is where we think things are going. And we're very excited because, like I said, even the drugs I showed you that inhibit metabolism are all, um, have all been used in people. So now, um, kind of to finish up the talk, I'm going to tell you about uh, something that totally took us by surprise and probably much more um, within uh, your um, area of expertise uh, uh, than mine. So I showed you the experiments where we, um, where we uh, um, uh, induced EAE in the REB knockout mice. And remember, those mice only have REB knocked out in their T cells, nowhere else, okay? And so during the course of those experiments, um, Adam, who is uh, one of the students working on it, he told me, he comes up to me and says, the EAE experiments are going really well. The REB mice are not getting any disease. And initially, I was a little upset because Adam was the blinded reader. Like, he wasn't supposed to know which are REB knockouts and which are not. And so I said to him, you know, how do you know? And he said, because the mice are so fat. And so then I said, well, um, how come you didn't tell me this? And they're like, well, I don't know. And we didn't think it was important. Um, so, uh, so it was kind of neat because, you know, of course, these mice are just on normal chow. And uh, so it's not a high-fat diet or anything like that. And they're actually really big compared to the other mice. I don't know if this picture betrays it. We, um, but anyway, so this was really neat. So um, having uh, some clinical training, you know, I thought, oh, this is kind of an interesting finding. And, you know, maybe uh, these mice will be, turn out to be a good model for insulin resistance or, you know, type 2 diabetes. So they did, um, you know, these type of glucose tolerance tests, and the data came like this. And actually, I was away, and I saw it, and I, and I saw the difference, saw the stars, and I was really excited. And I got an email, and then I looked at the, um, the legend. And so I emailed back, and I said, listen, the data looks really good, but I think you switched the, um, the legend. And he emailed me, no, 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 I didn't. I'm like, no, you, you had to. And he says, I know what you're thinking, but I didn't. You know, we were very careful. And sure enough, when we repeated the experiment, it, it repeated multiple times. And in fact, this is with uh, insulin tolerance tests as well. So it turned out that when we get rid of REB in T cells, the mice are not insulin resistant or, or glucose resistant, but actually increased uh, insulin sensitivity or uh, glucose sensitivity. And so one of the experiments we did, there are a lot we could do, but we, we didn't have the money or the people to do everything. But one of the experiments we did is we pulled out, uh, I think this is liver, although sometimes they tell me it's fat. It's either liver or fat cells from the mice. So remember, we knock out red in the T cells, so the liver or fat cells are normal, they're, they're wild type. 
And we did this little uh, in vitro assay where we uh, pulsed the uh, cells with insulin and then measured the decay of the insulin receptor phosphorylation. And as all of you know, this happens fairly rapidly in the wild time mice and it was sort of delayed in the um, knockout mice. When I say knockout, knockout in the T cells. So it looked like the target tissues had incre increased uh, insulin uh, receptor um, sensitivity. Um, so then what we also noticed, we sent off a chemistry panel that even though the mice were the mice that were fat, they had this markedly decreased uh, trig triglyceride levels. So we're trying to figure out what's going on here. And then, then we did this. Because, you know, all the guys who do, like, protein structure and stuff, they're constantly showing you things that rotate. So I figured now's my chance to show a slide that rotates, right? Let's see. Yeah, oh, good. It's working after all. So these are PET scans of the mice. And, I, I mean, you, you, I don't know if you're convinced by anything. But the point is we're getting – I'll show you the real – I'll show you molecular data in a, sec, in a second. But the, this is the bladder. This is um, the heart, which light up in both of them. But – what, what we found and what the radiologists who helped us with this said is that you get, you get this really um, lighting up in the intrascapular region of the mouse. And that's where people and mice actually, where their brown fat is. So it looked like the mice had more uh, brown fat. And in fact, I, you, know, you don't have to be convinced by this, but when we did um, more molecular types tests, what we found is, is that pound for pound, uh, UCP1 was pretty much the same in the brown fat of the wild type and the revs. However, from, the, from the, um, some pathology and the PET scans, we know overall there's more brown fat. But what was really interesting is that when we interrogated the white adipose tissue, where literally the UCP1 is like zero, it's like really nice because the control is never high, um, we started to see an increase in UCP1 in the white adipose tissue, suggesting that there might be some de novo Beijing, browning, whatever you want to call it um, in these mice. And so in, in terms of summarizing what we know so far is that um, uh, this is a serendipitous finding in vivo where the red mice, uh, t mice lacking red in their T cells demonstrate increased brown fat and potentially de novo generation of brown fat within the adipose tissue. And that um, they have increased, uh, decreased serum triglycerides, increased uh, glucose tolerance. And it looks like the target tissues are really more sensitive uh, to insulin. So now let me pose a question that my mother posed to me. So, she, so I'm telling her about this. She's always asking me, how are things going? And um, I say, oh, we found this thing, that this new finding that may have you know, relevance to type 2 diabetes and obesity. And you know, maybe even a pathway that we could you know, inhibit it on. And so, of course, she said to me, I don't understand. You say it could help treat obesity, but the mice are fat. Okay? And actually, her question is a really good question. Because um, by the law of thermodynamics, the, um, of, of physics, the mice should not be fat. Because I can tell you, and, and actually I should have included the data, um, we put them in the metabolic chamber. And in fact, they're burning off uh, more calories, more heat um, than wild-type mice. So how is it, you know, they have more brown fat. The brown fat's working the way it should. Why are they fat? And the reason is, is that we got a little lucky in that um, not all the mice are fat. Um, it just so happened the ones that we looked at were. And, and the ones that are fat look like they just eat a lot more. So, um, so in theory, based once again on the laws of thermodynamics, if we had paired feedings, that the mice should lose weight because they're burning off their calories in the form of uh, heat 
Um, so, so that's something we need to do, but uh, it's something I'll have to bring out. The second thing, you know, there are a lot of people who are nihilists. Uh, you know, they see something like this and they, all, and, and they want to just knock it down. But, um, but the thing that to me is really interesting is to quote Yogi Berra. So people say, how do you know it's going to work? To quote Yogi Berra, we know it works because it works, right? <laughs> meaning, um, uh, meaning this is a, we found this as a clinical finding. So I, I don't have all the answers for you. But I know it works because this is what happened in the mice. I don't know if it's going to work in people, but it, it's a clinical finding. So whatever we're looking at um, actually works in vivo because that's the way we discovered it. Okay. So to move on, the next type of questions people ask us we love because this is a great immunology question. So, of course, people say, well, how do you know you're only knocking out the gene in the T cells? Maybe you're knocking it out like in the hypothalamus or the tip target tissues or whatever, right? So we're like, no problem, because immunologists love to take T cells and put them into other mice. So that's exactly what we did is we um, adoptively transferred um, wild type of red T cells into rag mice, and this one of these ones, and we could recapitulate the result um, by just adding the T cells. So that was kind of neat. One of my favorite experiments, although this is a one-off, it's not like we've done it 10 times, but um, is we, we actually purchased some mice that were on high-fat diets. We continued the high-fat diet. And, of course, you know that when you do that, around, depending on your colony or whatever, 30, 40, some people say 50, 60% of the mice will be insulin-resistant. Um, and so we found a couple of mice of the five, uh, 10 that we bought that were insulin-resistant. And you can see here, so that pre-adoptive transfer, you know, they were um, clearing glucose a lot less than the control mouse. And then what we did is we um, gave them a tiny bit of radiation and gave them uh, T cells from the red knockout. And you can see here, this particular mice I'm showing you because this had a really good take of the T cells. 41% of the T cells were from the donor. And then when we redo the glucose tolerance test, it looks like you know, we improve glucose tolerance. So of course, uh, being a, a, a bone marrow transplanter, this is this, um, you know, this idea that you could potentially take someone's cells out, genetically engineer them, and then put them back in to treat their um, glucose intolerance is actually a really neat idea. And if you think of it, it's not that far-fetched because one of, the, one of the aspects of the breakthrough of immunotherapy was, I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with this, is CARs, which are chimeric antigen receptors. And this is, a lot of groups are doing it, but Carl's unit Penn has sort of been pioneering this, the idea that you take out T cells from the patient, you genetically engineer them with receptors and co-stimulatory signaling, and then put them back in the patient to treat their, patient, their cancer. So that actually is much more complex than potentially what we can do with the patient's T cells uh, here for um, diabetes. So just something to think about. But in any case, initially we thought that we were just tapping into something that probably you're all familiar with, and that is this idea that, that you know, to me, as someone who doesn't think about the field a lot, that I have to now think of fat, particularly obese fat, as an inflammatory uh, tissue, right? In the same way that, you know, it's no problem for me to look at the joints of, something, of someone with arthritis and say, oh, there's inflammation there. You know, we have to look at obese fat as an inflammatory tissue. And so this is from a review based on three uh, papers that came out looking at the role of T cells in regulating fat. And so the idea is in lean fat, it, there's not as many uh, Th1 cells, there's CD8 cells, lots of regulatory cells. But then in obese fat, um, this immunologic environment switches so there are less Tregs and Th2 cells and more Th1 and um, CD8 effector cells. 
So, so this idea is, you know, emerging that obviously that inflammation regulating fat is going to regulate um, systemic metabolism. But what was interesting, a, a little disappointing to us because this is what we like to study, is that really we, we weren't so far in this ongoing project, obviously, we haven't been able to detect any differences in um, the um, makeup of uh, the inf inflammatory cells in the <coughs> wild type of the red mice. And in particular, what we were gunning for are the FOXP3 cells. So we thought, oh, we'll find a, a ton of FOXP3 cells in the red knockouts, and that'll explain everything. But whereas people have shown that, meaning there's papers in the literature showing if you give Tregs, you can improve systemic metabolism, et cetera, you know, it doesn't look like that's what we're doing. So kind of to summarize the second part of this, the transfer of the red T cells recapitulates the finding. So we think, you know, we're pretty confident that it's T cell mediated. You know, I just throw this in because I just think it's kind of neat, the idea that you could take this high-fat diet mice and, you know, potentially re-engineer the C-cells, put it back in, and, and kind of um, improve insulin uh, resistance. Um, our data thus far suggests this is not the regulation of inflammation. And so as a result, what I think we tapped into, and I don't know exactly what it is, we've tapped into a different system of regulating systemic metabolism that's independent of um, of inflammation per se, meaning um, it could be that T cells and other immune cells have mechanisms to, you know, think of it, they're all over the body, it'd be great to use them to regulate systemic metabolism, but whatever the system is, it's not through, um, you know, mere regulation of uh, inflammation. So then, of course, we did... Um, so normally I hold off on doing microarrays because I'm, I'm much more of like a hypothesis-driven type of guy. But of course, we, you know, everyone's asking us, so we did the microarray, and we got this dot all the way out here, which is, you know, and I had the nice name of KLK1V22. Um, so, 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 and then when we looked at the microarray data, KLK is actually part of the Calcarine family, and in mice, there are actually, I think, 22 or 26 of them. In, uh, 26 of them. In humans, there are, I think, about 16. And you can see, you know, that, you know, markedly upregulated in the red knockouts versus the uh, wild type of all the calcarines. So, so what is this? Not much is known. You can tell by its name. Um, and uh, so what is known is, is that it's a member of the calcarine family. Um, it's, you know, a lot of the data out there is on, um, uh, is on, uh, from protein chemists, you know, looking at the family and it's been implicated in binding to, stabilizing and potentially activating like nerve growth factor, epidermal growth factors. So people can show it binds to these growth factors. It's a serine protease. And, um, and it's expressed in the salivary gland at uh, very high levels uh, in mice. Now, now this is actually unfortunate for me because uh, only in the sense that, um, you know, someone did an experiment. So in case you're wondering, because if you, if you PubMed this, you only get like 16 uh, papers. And there's one that, that relates KLK to Sjogren's syndrome, so autoimmunity of the salivary gland. But it's completely irrelevant because what someone did is they took salivary glands, they studied Sjogren's syndrome, and they mashed them up and put them in CFA, and they injected it into mice, and they could get inflammation of the salivary gland. So for them, that was really cool, because that's what they want to study. But, and then when they fractionated the proteins that were in the mashed up salivary gland, 
One of the proteins that was, um, that when added to CFA can induce this was KLK1B22. So we submitted this grant and someone like went off on the fact that, you know, I didn't mention this data, but the data is, is completely irrelevant. It's not like this is associated with um, autoimmunity of the salivary gland. It's just that someone was able to use it as a tool. Just like you could mash up collagen, put it in CFA and induce uh, experimental arthritis. But in any case, uh, this is what's known about this. So, so initially we thought, oh, you know, we're, we're pretty good at molecular biology. We'll make some recombinant KLK and we'll see what it does. And, and we were successful. But at the end of the day, we would have this vats of fluid. Um, we would have so little that we could only do in vitro experiments. And you can see here that um, uh, when we do like insulin receptor phosphorylation, uh, you can see that without KLK, you get this, and with KLK, you get this. So this was really neat because it recapitulated what I showed you of the target tissue. The other thing that's nice about this is that these are human cells. Um, so we know that this effect has the possibility of working on human cells. So when we were being frustrated by trying to grow up a lot of uh, recombinant KLK, what we did is we made an adenovirus vector expressing KLK. And so once again, in the in vitro assay, when you infect the cells with the adenovirus expressing KLK versus infect them with the negative control, you get increased insulin uh, receptor phosphorylation. So that was good. So then we did some in vivo experiments, which actually are pretty neat. So, we, so um, first of all, um, the, I call this the, uh, the um, uh, graduate student tolerance test. Well, I, no, actually here it's pretty good. Uh, I'll, I'll show you what I mean in a second. So here you can see the um, overall level of, um, of uh, uh, fasting glucose is less in the calc bed. And also what was really interesting, it's only a couple of mice because it was like an afterthought. The triglycerides in the infected mice are lower. So that was kind of neat because that's what we saw in the knockout, right? And then um, when we did the tolerance test, you know, we got really nice um, clearance of uh, glucose in these mice. So of course, everyone, including our tech transfer office, are like, when are you going to do the experiments with recombinant um, KLK? And so we got a little bit of money um, from, you know, <clears throat> a pilot project. And we bought some, uh, we had someone make some KLK professionally for us. And so we just started uh, working with it. We, you know, and this is um, the type of data we've gotten. This is like, when, you know, like this is like a couple of weeks ago. So this is what I call the graduate student tolerance test. So here, you can see by just the graduate student injecting things into the mouse, the blood glucose of the mouse goes up, um, but it's it's markedly decreased in the KLK amount. So you don't even have to give glucose. You just like bring the graduate student into the room and. Uh, and you can get this stress response. And then, um, uh, and then you can see it looks like, you know, once again, we haven't perfected the delivery. So everyone says, why can you use 43 micrograms? And the reason is because that, the, the, the company gave us this stuff really dilute, and that's the most he could get in. So, um, so obviously, we're excited about working about this, working with this, and the idea that potentially, you know, we're onto something in terms of this protein. Now, one thing that people ask me a lot is that, is there any GWAS data? Is, you know, what's the human version? So there's no direct human or ortholog. Um, and so, but, but the calcarons are really interesting because if you line up the human chromosome 19 with the mouse chromosome, what you see, and actually in other mammalian cells as well, is that KLK1 replicated multiple times. I told you 16 times in the human and 22 to, uh, 26 times in the mouse. And, and so this is an example, actually, 
of convergent evolution, meaning each of these new genes, like KLK1, B22, 17, etc., they all, um, as they um, evolved, the human and the mouse got closer together in terms of their sequence homology. So, so we haven't found the closest one yet. But what's really neat is that, um, if you, so, so the point is, is that in KLK1B22 may have a very specific purpose in the mouse, and there's no exact parallel because you don't need that pur purpose in the human. On the other hand, in the human, it may have a different purpose based on the physiology of humans. And like I said, if you look at the regulation of KLK in the mouse, for example, um, it's regulated uh, by cispeptin. And of course, cispeptin has been um, uh, involved in uh, puberty, pregnancy, and lactation. We think what we're going to find is, is that the KLK that has our properties is going to be uh, upregulated in humans under a different circumstance. And then when we give it to people or give it to mice that have um, uh, diabetes, we're able to make a big impact because it's not normally expressed. And I just show down here, as a, as a hematologist oncologist, you know, paralogs from snake venom have been really um, useful in terms of uh, designing human drugs. And then, of course, many of you know, like the Gila monster or lizards, um, uh, you know, that have actually led to the development of GLP-1 as a human, uh, you know, for, as a treatment for humans. So, um, so just to summarize, uh, knocking out rabbit T cells results in the systemic effect um, uh, in terms of insulin sensitivity, decreased triglyceride, and increased ground fat. Uh, I didn't mention this, but originally we just transferred serum and we could reproduce the effect. Uh, our data suggests that this KLK1B22 is involved, uh, and um, obviously we're excited about the... There are two things, actually. One is, I'm really interested in understanding what's going on completely. Actually, that's important to us. But then also important to our tech transfer people and stuff is the idea, and, and to me as a physician, the idea that maybe this is a novel means to treat diabetes and obesity. And then once again, I kind of alluded to this, this idea of cellular therapy as a means of treating or curing uh, systemic menopause diseases. So just to uh, end up, um, uh, the work on mTORMLab was really put forward by Greg Delgoff, who's actually now applying. He went to Darabig Knowledge Lab to do postdoc, and now he's applying for faculty positions. Um, the, I mentioned Emily Highcamp did the SGK1 work, and then um, Adam and uh, Kristen worked on the uh, diabetes um, stuff. Thank you very much. Sir, thank you. That's very interesting. Um, just to be sure that uh, it is really a non-specific systemic effect, have you done any transfers of specific T-cell populations that are rat deficient? Yeah, so, um, so one thing that, that we know is that it's expressed uh, in both CD4 and CD8 cells. And when we look in vitro, uh, we see, you know, like if we skew cells to like Th1, Th2, of course, when you skew Rev cells to Th1, they don't become Th1 cells, but they still express KLK. So as far as we can tell, um, it's not specifically expressed. Now, one thing that we were gunning for was T-Rex, right? You know, maybe it's more expressed naturally in T-Rex. And so we looked over the, the data, you know, of Diane Mathis and stuff, and they never see it upregulated in any of their T-Rex, so... So I don't know. I, I don't, Do they need antigens? Yeah, oh yeah, so that's in my grant. So we don't know that because that was in my grant that wasn't funded. 
Actually, um, that, you know, it's funny. I thought it's such a, you know, that, like you said, that's the type of question that we love to answer because what we would do, I, I know the experiment, we would take um, rem knockouts on a rag background, TCR transgenics, and we'd put them into mice and we'd see if we get the effect or not. Haven't done it yet, but that's what we want to do. In your, in your rev knockouts, do you see differential uh, or changes in macrophage activation in adipose? Um, so, so far when we look in adipose, we haven't seen yet any, like, you know, grossly looking at subsets of macrophages. But your point is really well taken because, uh, actually we gave the mice to my wife, who's a macrophage person, and she's finding really interesting um, differences in the macrophages of the, T of the mice in which Rev is knocked out in the T cells. But only in, she's only looked in like disease states, like in inflammation, you know, like lung inflammation and things like that. But I think that potentially is a, is a good line of inquiry. Is the Warburg effect mediated by any of the mTOR pathways? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so for example, that, that's exactly the point. Um, in that, um, you know, so for example, HIF, MIC, you know, and then other, um, and then some of the um, glycolytic enzymes such as PFK1 are actually directly regulated by TORC1. In fact, to, you know, something I didn't show you the data on, as I mentioned, I'm an oncologist as well. So we developed, I think, I, I think it's actually really cool and it's working, is that we took three mTOR inhibitors, so rapamycin, which is, a, um, is an allosteric inhibitor, PP242, which is actually a kinase inhibitor, it binds to the kinase domain. And then metformin, which is a very weak mTOR inhibitor, but it does. And our hypothesis was, is that if we could inhibit mTOR with three different drugs, just like the people do in HIV, right? They inhibit the virus with like three drugs, that we could prevent the development of resistance by blocking the Warburg pathway. And actually, it worked um, brilliantly in that we took these pancreatic cancer xenografts, put them in nude mice, and this is up, go, up and running in, in our center, and they've been testing drugs left and right. None of their drugs work. And we get this marked inhibition of the human pancreatic cancer cells um, by inhibiting mTOR. So much so that we, have, we actually have a clinical trial that's going to be, that started, we haven't enrolled anyone yet, using like multiple mTOR inhibitors at once to block uh, cancer cells. I just one last quick question. So yeah. the circulation of your T-cell rev knockouts, do you see, can you measure circulating KO? So, KOK1B22. So the answer is, uh, hopefully, like in a week or two, we will, because there's no antibody to it, but part of the startup money that we got, the pilot funds, was two things, to make a common protein and an antibody. And so we should have that antibody, so once we have it, that's exactly what we're going to do. So. Right. Thank you very much.